Would you please turn with me to your study outline? Uh, You may have received one that's paper uh, as you came in. If not, those are available out there. Does anybody need one of these? I'm always making somebody go back and get them. Pastor Greg, uh, does anybody need this? You raise your hand if you want a paper one. Or you can use your phone, uh, your smartphone, or your mobile device. You'll see behind me how you can go about using either your smartphone or your mobile device if you would like to save paper. Or you can get a hold of paper as you come in. Uh, You can be able to do that. And so whatever way is best for you uh, to access. Uh, That's what I want you to do. Now, we're finishing up a series tonight called Hard Times. And we, first of all, talked about how to handle hard times. We talked about why does God allow evil in the world? Uh, The big question that everybody has, why does God allow uh, there to be evil? We talked last Sunday about why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And now tonight is maybe the hardest one of all, uh, which is why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? How many of you have ever wondered about that question? Why does he allow good things to happen to bad people? Now, Here's our little contest, and, and, and Lisa is our game show host. She is our, like, uh, who's, who's, who's it on Wheel of Fortune? You're, White. Vanna White, okay. Lisa's our Vanna White. Lisa and I are both frustrated game show That's hosts, right. you know. And so I'll be Pat Sad, you say Jack. Okay, now you have to be honest, but anybody that would know this would be the type of person that would be totally honest on this. How many of you, before the study outline... Uh, guessed. I said last week I'd have a gift for you if you guessed this. How many of you guessed that it was ASAF uh, before the outline? Okay. Do we have just one winner there? Okay. Now listen, I just want you to know so nobody feels bad. This was far out there. I'm telling you, this is like one of the most obscure things I've ever asked of anybody ever time because basically I was asking you to read my mind. And so, uh, so anyway, I tell you what, did, how many tried to figure it out? Let me see how many fit, tried to figure it out. Okay, I tell you what we're going to do. For, the, for Esther that figured it out, okay, and I gotta, be, gotta brag because Esther is a fellow Wheaton College graduate. Like myself. We've got a copy of Turnaround Jake. We got a copy of Turnaround Jake. Now, for those that gave it an effort, we have a Kit Kat bar. How is that? Okay, raise your hand if you gave it a try. Okay, Lisa will start throwing those out to everybody. If you gave it a try, if you, if you thought about it even for a moment this week. Okay, get that Kit Kat bar. There you go. And, uh, and so turn around, Jake, for Esther. And then, okay, very, Who very else, cool. Maddie? Now, as Anybody she else? continues to do that, go ahead. Come on. If you even gave it a passing thought, I I, I've got, got 24 Not of those I've got out. You got some over here by you. Glory. Okay, got oh, Mark man. over there. Okay, oh, there you go. Bad. All right. Now, all right, here we go. This guy ASAP. Oh, ASAP's so there. bad. Okay, so this, I should not All right, have there you go. All right. Anybody else? Very verified. Anybody yeah. else? Anybody? I don't want anybody. Keep those hands up. Get. Got to clean them out because it is not good for me to have these in my office. You know? Can I make a confession to you? I bought four packets of them. I ate one of them this week. I ate the whole packet of them. There's like eight in a packet. So Kit Kat bars are really addictive uh, to me. Now, this guy ASAP is just thank you, Lisa. Let's hear it for Lisa, game show host Lisa. All right, there we go. Now we know why they have so much fun at the women's retreats is because uh, she's always handing out gifts. Now, this guy ASAP, it's really interesting. He wrote like more of the Bible. You heard me say this last Sunday night. This guy, I mean, how, how many of you have heard of ASAP before? Let me see your hands. Okay, see that? that how many never heard of ASAP before? Let me see that. Oh, that's... 
Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. How many of you have never heard a sermon on Asaph before or done by Asaph? Well, tonight's your night. Aren't you glad you're here to hear about a guy you've never heard of or to hear a message from a guy that you've never heard of before? And this is like these 18 people. I was amazed. The reason I said these 18 is he wrote 17 of the Psalms of the 150 Psalms. David wrote most of them. But the second most was this guy, Asaph. He wrote 17 Psalms. So what I did is I went through the Bible and just listed everybody who wrote part of the Bible. God led to write, of course, God is the ultimate author of the Bible. But God used uh, these people to write less than 17 chapters. And it's kind of a who's who list uh, from the Bible. That means that Asaph wrote more chapters of the Bible than Daniel. More than Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. That's not hard. He only wrote one. Uh, Jonah, Jonah and the whale, only wrote four. Uh, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk wrote three chapters of the Bible. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. I think he wrote like 14 chapters of the Bible. Malachi wrote four. Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, he wrote 16. So Asaph beat him by one chapter. The writer of Hebrews, which we're not 100% sure uh, who it was. Was it Paul? Was it somebody else? If it was Paul, then obviously he wins because of all of his others. But the writer of Hebrews, if it was somebody different like Barnabas or or like um, Apollos or the two main characters. uh, Asaph wrote more than the writer of Hebrews, more than James, uh, more than Peter, more than the apostle Peter. Asaph wrote more than, and Jude, and that's an easy one because he only wrote one chapter. More than all these is this guy Asaph. And I believe he's got an excellent answer in Psalm 73, the psalm that he wrote on why does God allow good things to happen to bad people. Now, of course, we won't understand completely until we get to heaven. But he gives us some very helpful insights. I have personally found it helpful. I hope that you will uh, as well. Now, our theme verse is Romans 8.28. As it is on all this subject, whether it's bad things to good people or good things to bad people. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's leave it up there for a moment, and let's read this out, out loud, out loud together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, the key here is that good is not as the same as for the good, okay? For the good. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says that God works for the good. Okay, now that is a very important distinction. It's not good. It's for the good. He works for the good. Now, you see, that means that good things can happen to bad people, and bad things can happen to good people. But only for those who love him, only those who are called according to his purpose, there's our favorite word again, the name of our church here, Purpose Church, Okay, only those called according to his purpose, only those who love him can claim the promise that whatever happens in your life, whether it be good or bad, God is working for the good and his ultimate purposes uh, within our lives. Now, who was Asaph? Asaph was one of David's chief musicians. He was kind of like the Jarrett LeMaster. Uh, he was one of the chiefs, or Pastor Jay, or Pastor Jarrett. Uh, he was like the Pastor Jarrett or the Pastor Jay uh, for David, King David, one of his chief musicians. And like I said, he wrote 17 of the Psalms. And so if you look in your Bible at Psalm 73, it says a Psalm of Asaph. 
Now, how Asaph pulled out of a time of discouragement, and we'll see the different stages here as God, as he saw that not all things are good for those that follow God, but he does work for the good of all those events, whether they be bad or good, which also means that good or bad things can happen to bad people as well. Now, here's stage one, the believer, okay? Uh, Here he states his faith and his confidence in God right off the bat in verse one. Surely God is good to Israel. Who were Israel? They were the people of God. Christians are considered the new Israel. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, it is the new Israel. Our Christ followers are Christians. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, the problem is, is that we think it's tit for tat. We think you do something good, God does something good. You do something bad, God does something bad to you. But that's not the way that it is. Uh, Good in the Christian life is not equal to an easy life, a pain-free life, or a successful life where nothing bad happens. And this is a very important thing to understand in our Christian life. Or we will, as Asaph did temporarily, get disillusioned with God. Okay? Good in the Christian life is not the same as an easy life, a pain-free life, or a successful life where nothing bad happens. Let me share with you an analogy, and I'm going to come back to it at the end of, of, end of our study in just a few minutes, um, that is really helpful to me that I heard a pastor say one time, and I thought it was extremely helpful. You see, why sometimes people get disillusioned with the Christian life is let's imagine that you're going to take a flight this evening from Los Angeles to New York City. Okay, you're going to take that flight. And what if I tell you, you know what, if you wear a parachute on that flight, it's going to make your flight more comfortable, it's going to make it more enjoyable, you're going to have more fun if you wear this parachute. So you get in, you put the parachute on, you sit down, and first of all, everybody's staring at you like you're totally weird. Um, You're getting hot and sweaty with a parachute on the whole time. You get back pains. It's uncomfortable as, as it goes on. What will you do? After a while, you're going to say, you know what? Glenn lied to me. Glenn sold me a false bill of goods. I'm going to get rid of this parachute. This is stupid. It's embarrassing, and it's uncomfortable. Okay. Now, what if, on the other hand, I told you, here's a parachute. It may be uncomfortable. People may make fun of you, but hold on to it for dear life, because halfway through this plane flight, the plane's going to crash. And the only people that are going to survive as this plane flies from Los Angeles to New York City are those that have a parachute. Now, has your perspective changed? You don't care if people stare at you. You don't care if people make fun of you. You don't care if you're hot and sweaty. You don't care if you get a backache. Nothing's taking that parachute off of you. You are hanging on to it for dear life. And that's the problem when sometimes we share Jesus as if he's going to be a feel-good solution that will make your voyage through life, your journey through life, more comfortable. And then when that doesn't happen, when hard things do happen, when sometimes it's even harder to follow Christ than it is to not follow Christ, people get disillusioned. And after a while, they throw away the parachute, which is Jesus. But if you tell people, look, I know there are going to be hard days. I know it's going to be tough. I know people are going to make fun of you sometime. But you hold on to Jesus for dear life because eventually this world, this plane is going down. And the only people that survive the crash are those that have the parachute of Jesus. And that's when you don't get disillusioned because you understand that was all part of it. And so please forgive me if as your pastor I ever present 
Christianity as the easiest way to get through this life or the most enjoyable way or the most comfortable way to get through. It's not. Sometimes it's hard, but it is the best because this world system is eventually going down and the only people that survive it are those with a parachute. So stage one, he's a believer. But because he thought that the parachute was supposed to make his life comfortable, he becomes a doubter in stage two. He gets disillusioned. Verse two, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Look at that. He was a leader in the temple. He was a godly man. He was a leader uh, there in Israel. And yet he still had his doubts. And it's okay to have doubts. If a leader in the church, if a leader in the temple, like Asaph, had his doubts, then you know what? We'll have doubts sometimes as well. Now, what was the reason for his doubts? Why did he become a doubter? He says in verse 3, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, the only way we can have free will, remember we talked about a couple of times ago when we looked, when we first got into this series, we talked about free will. And God doesn't want mannequins. God doesn't want, remember I brought my dolls here last week and creeped all of you out with my two talking dolls that when you push their button, they always say the right thing. God doesn't want mannequins. He doesn't want dolls with a pull string that always say, I love you, God. He wants to give us free will. And if every time we did something right, boom, we get a million dollars. Do something good, boom, you get a million dollars. And every time we did something um, wrong, boom, lightning struck us. That would be like a gun to our head. That would be like, why would you serve God? Well, because anything good happens. And if I don't serve God, bad things. Now, it kind of was like that in the nation of Israel. They basically, the deal was in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel, you serve God, your crops will be blessed, everything will go well for you. Now, it was delayed by about 50 or 60 or 70 years. So it wasn't immediate like having a gun to your head. Uh, if In general, if they served God, things went well for them in this life. If they didn't serve God, things went poorly for them in, in this life. And so I always compare it to it's kind of like children. I mean, with children, with your children, you basically say, obey me and I'll throw you a Kit Kat, okay? Uh, disobey me and you won't get the reward or you'll get punished. And so the Old Testament was kind of like God dealing with us like children. But if my uh, 20, my 30-year-old son, John, or my 32-year-old son, John, or whatever age he is, Rebecca, help me out. Uh, Kimberly's not here. Don't tell their mother. Okay, okay. Well, if my son in his 30s, if I still have to throw him a Kit Kat bar to get him to do the right thing, um, you know, that I want his, written on his heart to obey uh, God, right? Uh, eventually in adulthood, and that's the way God treats us in the New Testament. He treats us as grown-up children who do the right thing because God's law is written on our hearts, not because there's reward and, and because uh, there is punishment. But he begins to lose his faith because he envied the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. We saw this last Sunday night with Job, where he replied after all of his troubles to his wife who said, curse God and die. He said, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this Job did not sin in what he said. You know, basically, as we saw last Sunday night, Job's suffering was to answer the question, is he following God to have an easy life or is he following God because it's the truth, because it's the right thing to do? Do we follow God because it's the right thing to do? Or do we follow God in order to have an easy life? Now, stage three, he wrestles with God. 
And it's very interesting here. When you get discouraged or depressed or tired, if you're like me, do you tend to exaggerate things? I, I know I do. When, when, I, when I get tired, when I get depressed, when I get discouraged, I tend to exaggerate. Everything's bad. You know, nothing's good. Well, he tends to exaggerate here. Watch his exaggerations. He says, why do arrogant people get rich? Do all arrogant people get rich? No. Do some arrogant people get rich? Yes. But he exaggerates it. He says in verse 3, for I envy the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, Why do arrogant people have great health? Are all arrogant people healthy? No. But some are. And so he exaggerates it in verse 4. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. It's an exaggeration. But when you're discouraged, when you're depressed, do you tend to exaggerate? Yeah, we do. Why do arrogant people get away with being mean? Do arrogant people always get away with being mean? No. Do they some of the time? Yes, they do. And he exaggerates it. Verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. You know what these next few verses remind me of? They remind me of ISIS in the Middle East. I mean, do you ever get, how many of you have ever get angry with what you see ISIS is doing in the Middle East? And you're like, God, are you watching? Look at what these people do. And they just seem to get by with it. See what I mean when I continue to read. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. I mean, it just sounds like, why do mean people like ISIS get by with what they're doing? Next page of your study outline. Why are arrogant people so popular? Now, are all arrogant people popular? No. But when you're discouraged, does it seem like they are? Oh, yeah. Verse 10. Therefore, their people turn to them. And drink up waters in abundance. Um, Man, so many times it seems like when uh, those that are wicked or prideful, when they're arrogant, people just drink it up. They just lap it up. And they become even more popular. And the next question he asks, is God even paying attention? How many of you have ever wondered if God is paying attention? Hey, God up there, are you paying attention to what's going on? Verse 11. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Um, Then he begins to ask, has living for God been a waste of my time? God, are you up there? Everybody that seems to turn their back on you, it seems to go so well for them, and it doesn't seem to go so great for me. Have I been wasting my time? Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. He says, you know what? Maybe it's just not worth it following God. Now, I want to tell you, there's nothing wrong with having thoughts like this. Nothing wrong with wrestling with these thoughts. God is big enough to handle it. But here's the key. Let's not be lazy. Let's do the work and dig deeper. If we think about it more deeply... Okay, not just emotionally on the surface, we'll come eventually back to faith once again. But there's nothing wrong with wrestling with this. And at the superficial level, 
It does seem like this is true some of the time that the arrogant uh, prosper, as Asaph is talking about. Um, it's kind of like um, when you find in the Bible what we call superficial um, conflict within the Scripture. And all you got to do is dig deeper, and you will find that God's Word is without error every single time. But sometimes you got to do the work. Literally dig deeper. Sometimes it means archaeologically dig deeper. I mean, there's this one place where Matthew says that Jesus was going into Jericho when a miracle took place. And then Luke tends to contradict him and says, no, he was coming out of Jericho when the miracle took place. Well, you know what happened? We just dug deeper. Archaeologists literally dug deeper. And they found that there was an old Jericho that a Jew like Matthew would be talking about that Jesus was leaving even as he was going into a new Jericho, archaeologists discovered, that Luke, as a non-Jew, as a Greek or as a Gentile, would be um, referring to. And so both of them were right. From the Jewish perspective, he was leaving the old Jericho. From the Gentile perspective, he was entering into the new Jericho, and that's where he did the miracle. And so, so many times when critics of the Bible uh, try to say, oh, the Bible's filled with error, uh, and, and they'll criticize the Bible. All you got to do is dig deeper, and you'll find out that it is without error every single time. And the same thing is true with these philosophical doubts. Dig deeper, wrestle with God, and eventually you'll come back to stage four. You'll be a worshiper once again. He says in verse 15, If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered what? You tell me. Where did he go? The sanctuary of God. He went to church. He was struggling with this when he was by himself. But then he goes to the sanctuary of God, and then I understood. That's why we go to church. That's why it's so hard to do the Christian life by yourself, because we end up like Asaph, discouraged and depressed. He goes to church. That's why we go to church. That's why we worship that's where we study God's word because once again, we'll get perspective if we do that. That's why we're here tonight. That's why on a gorgeous Sunday evening, you carved out some time to go to the sanctuary, to look into God's word, to worship him because then we get our perspective once again and then we reach stage five, which is an even deeper faith than before. When he thinks about it more deeply, when he wrestles with it more deeply, he understands that the wicked are slipping and sliding into destruction. Now, we're not happy about that. You know, so many times Christians are portrayed as, hey, everybody bad's going to hell. Woo, aren't we happy about it? You know, I never meet anybody like that. They're not in our church. I don't feel that way. Um, um, I tell you what will happen to you sometimes is you'll get angry at people that, that mock God because you realize they're leading others astray. I mean, somebody like a Richard Dawkins, who is a prominent scientist, and he wrote the, the book, The God Delusion. Yeah, I get angry when I hear that. Bill Maher, how many of you ever heard Bill Maher, you know, who's a, who's a prominent atheist? And, and, and it'll make you angry. But you know what happens as you mature in your Christian walk? Like Asaph, you get a deeper faith, and all of a sudden, you're fearful for them. You're sad for them. I mean, I used to get angry at a Richard Dawkins or Bill Maher or some other prominent atheists making fun of, of followers of Christ. But you know, after a while, I think, oh my goodness, they're going to die someday. And that is scary. I mean, it's, nobody likes the thought of their death, and it is scary enough with Jesus. 
Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to die without Jesus? And all of a sudden, when you think more deeply like that, your heart goes out to them. And, and, and man, I'm, I, all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa, that's a heavy thought. Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to die without Jesus? And that's where Asaph gets. He comes to this deeper faith. He says in verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. All of a sudden you realize how scary it must be to face death without Christ. How much despair there would be to all of a sudden get to the end of your life and say, oh my goodness, I was living for stuff that's temporary. I've been investing my life in things that don't matter. I think that is why it is so hard for people to come to Christ later in life. Because you've got to admit that you've lost so much time. Now, don't get me wrong. It is way better to do it at the last minute than to never do it at all. I mean, one of the stories that we love at Easter time and, 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 and what, that we love on Good Friday is the thief on the cross who at the last minute said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he's in heaven for eternity today. And praise God, better to do it later than never at all. But I think it's one of the reasons that people, it's so hard for them to come to Christ later in life because you've got to admit that, man, I've wasted a lot of time. The Bible says that hell will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible says that hell will be a place of deep regret because you come to the end of your life and you're like, oh my goodness, how suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. The success of the wicked is an illusion. He says in verse 20, they are like a dream when one awakens. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. It's like all of a sudden, have you ever had a dream and you woke up, it was either a bad dream and you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm so glad that's not true. Oh, I'm so glad that's not true. Or it's a good dream and you're like, oh, bummer. It's not true. It's not true. And, and he says, it's going to be like that. You wake up as from a dream and when you arise, Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. The wicked may have money and health and popularity, but we have God. And, and, and as, the, as your Christian life gets deeper, you understand that's better than all that other stuff. Asaph says in verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, okay, uh, this word literally in the Hebrew means kidneys. He hurt all the way down to his kidneys, he was so bummed out and depressed and discouraged. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. He says, you know, God, when I thought that really it was survival of the fittest, I became like an animal. I thought like an animal. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. You know the beauty of pain in the Christian life? And I, and I don't want to minimize what you're going through. I look across you guys, and I see so many going through so many hard things. But you know the benefit of pain? 
it shatters our illusion of our self-sufficiency. And it reminds us that we are completely dependent upon God. And there's something about hard times that make our relationship with God. When God's all you've got, he becomes even more precious. And he says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How many of you feel like as you get older, your flesh is failing? Um, There may be more of it, but it's failing as the years go by. My flesh, my heart, how many of you feel like your heart is wearing out? My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The wicked may have money, health, and popularity, but we've got God. And when that moment of death comes and you're about to close your eyes, you have that hope to hang on to. You, you can hang on to him for dear life. There is a day of judgment coming soon. Verse 27, those who are far away from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all my deeds. You know what you do when you go through those hard times? You hang on to him more tightly than ever before. I want to close with this illustration. We'll put a picture of a beech nut 99 up there. And this is a true story. Just keep that up before as I tell this story. Uh, September 4th, 1987. Uh, this guy was 46 years old. Henry Dempsey heard an unusual no- noise. He was the pilot. He turned the controls over to his co-pilot and went to the back of the plane to check it out. As he reached the tail, the plane hit an air pocket. He was tossed against the rear door and realized the door was not shut properly. He was instantly sucked out of the jet. The co-pilot radioed the nearest airport and got permission to land. He reported that the pilot had fallen out of the plane. They sent a helicopter to search that area of the ocean. But when the plane landed, they discovered the pilot, Henry Dempsey, holding on to the outdoor ladder of the plane. He held on for 10 minutes as the plane flew 200 miles an hour at an altitude of 4,000 feet. And when it landed, he kept his head from hitting the runway, which was a mere 12 inches away. It took the airport. He survived. He lived. And this part's funny because he lived. I can, we can laugh about this. It took airport personnel several minutes to pry his fingers loose from the ladder. Now that is a great picture of what you do with Jesus when you're going through hard times. You hang on for dear life. And yeah, it seems like the people without parachutes in the plane, back to my earlier illustration, it seems like those people are so much more comfortable without a parachute. They're not hot and sweaty without a parachute. Nobody's making fun of them without a parachute. But you know what? You hang on to the parachute. You hang on to Jesus for dear life. You hang on to the ladder at the back of the Beechwood 99. You hang on to it for dear life. Because in the end, the plane is going down. And those that cling to Jesus will be the ones that survive. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. 
Paul writes, and this is a guy that suffered very, very much, so you don't want to punch him in the nose. If I said this, you'd want to punch me in the face. But Paul, who suffered a great deal, said this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I look across this room and I see people that have, from my perspective, very heavy and lasting troubles. And my heart breaks for you and I love you so much and I'm sorry you're going through that. But compared to heaven, our light and momentary troubles, remember, they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary. It may look temporarily like other people without Jesus are doing so much better for you. But what is unseen, the Jesus you can't see that you cling to, is eternal. It's going to last forever. And like Asaph, we wrestle with these things, we come back, and we cling to God because he is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And uh, all God's family said, amen. Um, As soon as we're done, we're going to run out and get chicken salad. I love chicken salad. Anything basically that's mayonnaise-based, I'm for. That's basically where I'm at. Uh, But let's stand, and uh, before we go over and get dinner... I want to close with what's called the serenity prayer. Now, you'll recognize it if you're in like an AA group or um, if you're um, in, um, um, boy, I'm just drawing a blank. What's our group here? Celebrate Recovery. If you're in a support group, you've said the first paragraph of this. It's probably very familiar to you. But maybe you haven't heard the rest of the prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, The first paragraph you'll recognize, but here's the rest of it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it to be, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. And all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a good evening.